good morning. I hate to interrupt your conversations. They sound like they're awesome. Um, but I'm so glad to be with you. Like Laura said, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm excited to be continuing our series called The Good Life. Uh, if you were here last week, we talked about there's, there's some different ideas around what the good life actually is. Maybe some of you, when you think of the good life, you think of like your dream house. Uh, how many of you or your spouse has a never-ending list of projects on your house and someday it'll be your dream house, right? And that will be the good life, right? Maybe some of you, you're thinking about your job and you're thinking, I've, I've, I've done my education, I've done my training, I'm on that track and when I get that title, when I get on that team, when I get into that vocation, that'll be the good life. I'll have made it, I'm there. Maybe some of us think of retirement, right? How many of us think of retirement? That's the good life, right? And those of you who are in retirement are like, maybe, yeah. <laughs> some parts, some parts, yeah. I, I've, I've heard all, all, all experiences when it comes to that, but we have our ideas about what the good life is, and we're not the only ones, that there's lots of people that would love to sell you on their idea of the good life, and some are a little bit more blatant than others, uh, so I brought some examples with me here. Uh, the first is Nestle. Good food, good life, good news. Because man, if you have like the right food and the right drinks, that's all you need, and you have it made, right? Uh, what about the next one here? This is right in the title, Good Life Fitness. We're gonna make it our brand. The good life is closer than you think. Use our machines, take our classes. You will have the good life. Just give us enough money, right? And then the final one here, I love this one. President Brie Cheese. Do you know what you were missing that whole time? Just a wedge of Brie Cheese. We could all go to the store right after this and we could get the good life. Right? These are the promises that are given to us. We have these ideas of what the good life is. And, and this isn't a new, a new thing. In the, in the first century, we have Israel and, and the Palestinian region uh, right there that is under Roman oppression. Right? Not only them, but the entire Mediterranean region. And it's this own context that, that we really have to understand to understand the ministry of Jesus. And there are all sorts of ideas of, of what is the good life, in this context, and how do we go after it? And some people were just up for a fight. Like, we just need to throw off our oppressors, we need to get out from Roman control, and some were more successful than others in this, but that's gonna be the good life. Others wanted to run off. It's, we're not gonna be able to live out our culture or our faith in this, so we're gonna create our own communities and live out what we think the good life is. Others just wanted to cut a deal with Rome and make the most of it, right? We're stuck here, this is how it's gonna be. So let's just make the good life <clears throat> as good as it can be, right here. And still others were just so committed to their faith and to their religion and their rituals and tradition and just said, if we can just keep at it, God's gonna come. The kingdom of God will come, but we have to strictly obey. We have to do these things and there the good life will be. And it's in this incredibly charged environment that Jesus uh, begins his ministry, and it's in this same environment that Jesus gives his longest recorded sermon, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where we're kind of living in this series, specifically the first section that we call the Beatitudes. Now, for many of us, whether we've been in church or not, the Beatitudes are kind of normalized to us. They're, they're familiar, when I think of blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the meek, I think of like 
fine china with that printing in cursive on it, right? Or maybe some of you have seen linens. I, I remember my preschool classroom had, literally had it plastered on the wall, all the Beatitudes, all in order, right next to the Ten Commandments, right? We make these into nice Christian sayings, right? And in doing so, we kind of lose a bit of the shock factor that these blessings come with that would have been very um, active in the minds of Jesus' listeners live on that mountainside. Now, Jesus starts out with a word that would have uh, perked the ears, would have brought, uh, got attention from all of his listeners, Greek, Jew, Roman alike, and that is blessed. And we talked a lot about that last week. I won't kind of retread that. But the word beatitude has nothing to do with attitudes, just to clear that up. It, it's actually uh, from the Latin term for blessedness. This is just a list of blessings. That's what this is. And I love how Amy Jill Levine describes this uh, term blessing. She's a New Testament scholar. And she wrote, we read the Beatitudes as indicating blessed are, happy are, fortunate are, praiseworthy are. I've also heard the translation congratulations, which sounded to me like the exclamation mazel tov, Hebrew for good luck with the connotation of the Australian good on ya. Right? This is kind of the, the, the gist of this term blessing. It's, it's kind of like a, everything is going well. Like this, this is good. We're, it's the good life. But what's so shocking is who Jesus calls blessed. It's the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. I mean, Jesus might as well have been saying fortunate are the unfortunate. Right? And it wouldn't be unlike Jesus to say something confusing like that, am I right? That, that's just uh, kind of where we're at, but if we know Jesus, we know Jesus doesn't leave us there in that confusion because every single statement, every one of these blessings comes with a promise that reminds us that these blessings aren't rooted in our condition. They're not rooted in our ability to obey a law or follow a ritual or run away or to fight back. They're rooted in God God's goodness, God's kingdom. If God is drawing near, the, this common phrase in the New Testament, the kingdom of God is at hand. God's establishing his kingdom, and in this kingdom, the poor in spirit find their place. In this kingdom, the mourning are comforted. Right? The Beatitudes in this way are, are both proclaiming and inviting us to the kingdom of God. The remarkable thing is that the unlikeliest of people are invited into this grand story that God is writing. And that's where we get to jump into the story. So if you're with me in Matthew chapter five, we're gonna get started in verse one. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now it's the second blessing that we're gonna spend our time in today, and this is a really difficult blessing to think about and to consider. Because when we think about these words for blessed, happy, fortunate, congratulations, good on ya, we don't think about mourning or grief or loss, like those don't, those don't match, those don't mesh our, with our experience. And I think we have a tendency in this way to attach God's blessing to the good things 
in life, right? I got a bonus. God is good all the time, right? We won the game. Thank you, Lord. Whether I was watching it on TV or playing myself, it doesn't matter. Thank you, God. We closed on a house. What a blessing. It's almost like when the good things happen, we're just waiting for a cosmic high five from God. Like, you're with me, right? But then things don't go our way, right? We have to sell the house. We lose the job. We lose the game. We lose a loved one, and we might ask, where'd the blessings go? And maybe what we're really asking is, where did God go? It's one of the most common questions of faith, whether uh, you're a Christian or not, is where is God when things go wrong? Where is God when things are hard? Where is God in my questions? And this is the journey we find in the book of Job. See, Job had a family, he had friends, he had wealth, he had a home. Everything was going well. And we find Job in in chapter 29 of his book reflecting on that chapter of his life. And I want you to notice this description here. I long for the years gone by when God took care of me, when he lit up the way before me and I walked safely through the darkness. When I was in my prime, God's friendship was felt in my home. The Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. See, when things were going well, Jesus felt like God, or Jesus, Job, felt like God was near, right? That God cared, that God was a friend. And we see that in his, in his own recollection here. But then tragedy strikes. Job loses everything, his, his friends, his house, his wealth, even his own health takes an extreme turn for the worse, And his view of God dramatically changes as a result. And we pick up just a chapter later, in chapter 30. I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. You've become cruel towards me. You use your power to persecute me. You throw me into the whirlwind and destroy me in the storm. So what happened? We're one chapter later with radically different recollections of God. And we're left with the question, did God change? Like, how did God go from being this caring, friendly God who lights our path to a cruel, persecuting, destructive God? Did God change? Well, see, I I believe that God does not change, that God is a constant uh, to us, and God is a constant in himself. But what we see in Scripture And what we see in our own lives and the world around us is that people's views of God change, either slowly over time or dramatically in an instant. But people's views of God change. And we see this with Job. His view of God was tied to the things of life, both good and bad. See, if things are going well, God's the best. God's my friend, he's near me, he lights my way. But if things are going bad, man, God's the worst. He's so mean, he's cruel towards me, he won't even look at me. See, and I wonder if you felt this way. I felt that way. Like when things take a turn for the worst, where is God? Is God actually like this? I'm wrestling with this, I'm struggling with this because life is inconsistent. 
when things are going well, they don't go well for all that long. We know that, right? And when things are going not that well, they get better eventually, right? They don't tend to stay bad forever. Life has ups and downs, and we've all experienced them. But when we tie God to the things of life, our view of God goes up and down as well. Life is good. God is good. Life is bad. God is bad. And friends, that's a simple faith. And if I'm honest, that's a small God that is completely responsive to the things of life just as we are. And it's a fragile faith. It's a faith that falls apart when life falls apart. But here's the good news. Is that God is constant. That God is consistent even when life isn't. That while our views of God may change, he does not. And that's precisely what God tells Job at the end of this book. And it's precisely what Job needed to hear. We, see, we hear from Job in chapter 42 as we're getting to the end of his story. Job says this. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. See, for the first time, Job isn't just talking about God or hearing things about God. Job is seeing God. Job is experiencing God as God truly is. And maybe for the first time, Job is recognizing that the blessing was never the good things. The blessing is God himself. Right? The good things are not the blessing. God is the blessing. Right? That, that God's very presence in the entire story of Job is the blessing, and the same is true for our lives, that there's a God who has been active in human history, that there's a God who has revealed himself not as distant from us, but near to us. And this is most clearly demonstrated and revealed in the life of Jesus. See, when Israel is occupied by the Romans, when they're under oppression, when everyone's trying to figure out what went wrong and what do we do now, a lot of people are asking, where is God in all of this? That's when Jesus arrives. The Jesus who takes time to care for the sick. The Jesus who, who takes time to sit with, to care about children. The Jesus who invites zealots, revolutionaries, tax collectors, fishermen, and women to be a part of his inner circle of friends and disciples. Jesus, who's fully God and fully human, who chooses to experience grief and loss along with us. We find this when Jesus hears the death of his close friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. It's a remarkable picture of God himself experiencing and processing grief, loss, and mourning. It's fascinating because we all experience grief a bit differently. We all process a bit differently. My wife and I have, have planned uh, several, many memorial services together. It's one of the ministries we've just had the honor of being a part of. And usually in a memorial service, there's a, a time of sharing where friends and family have a chance to just 
share their memories and their thoughts and, and things that they cherish. And we were talking this week about how different each of those are because it kind of paints a picture not only of the, of the loved one that was lost, but also of the family that's grieving, the loved ones that are, are processing and mourning. Some share heartwarming stories or, or stories of that person just being a hero or caring about them. Others just share like childhood mischief, run-ins with the cops, those kinds of things. We hear that a lot. Uh, and, and I'll always remember uh, a, a grandchild who uh, stood up and everyone was, uh, was just focused because he was a seven or eight-year-old gonna grab the microphone. And they decided to share um, the most important thing to them about their grandfather, which was his colorful language. Uh, and didn't just share that it existed, but decided to give examples. And, and mom had nothing to do, just had to sit there and, and, and listen. But what we recognized in that moment was everyone gave that space. <laughs> everyone gave that space for each one of those people to share that memory, because that's part of the process, right? That's part of how we remember who we've lost. That's how we process how life is going to be moving forward. It's all part of that process. And so it's in this passage in John chapter 11 that we get to see Jesus in that process. It's so fascinating. Jesus comes to Lazarus's house and everyone's wondering, where was Jesus? He could have done something about this. And the, remember, these are Jesus's followers. These are Jesus's friends. They're starting to get a picture of who Jesus really is. So some of them may even be asking, where was God in all this? And we see that reflected here, starting in verse 32. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. Five years ago, I lost one of my dearest friends very suddenly. <clears throat> Sorry. Her name was April. And there was only a week, exactly a week, between a cancer diagnosis and death. And so I didn't have a chance for a final visit, a conversation, a goodbye. And I, I felt a deep anger well up within me that a disease could take my friend so quickly from those that loved her so much. I felt deeply troubled that we would never have another deep conversation about life and faith that my kids wouldn't have a memory of someone who loved them so much. And I cried, I wept, just because I was sad. And as I read about Jesus processing the loss of his friend Lazarus, I recognize Jesus is right there with me. 
that Jesus sees grief and loss, not just in himself, but in others. He gets angry. He gets troubled. He sheds tears. I recognize that that Jesus grieves kind of like I do. That Jesus processes loss a bit like me. And this is where I recognize Jesus' comfort. That he doesn't just recognize our pain. Doesn't just understand our pain. Jesus knows our pain. We read in Isaiah 53, this is a passage that's attributed to the Messiah. It's a a prophecy concerning the Messiah. That's what's believed. It says in verse three, he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. And this is a really puzzling passage until you know the life of Jesus. Until you see who the Messiah would actually be, how God would reveal himself in this man, Jesus. You may remember from last week, the Greek word for blessed here in the Beatitudes was often used to describe uh, the Greek gods and their state of just bliss, right? That they're, they're all together separate from humanity, carefree, distant from the troubles of humanity. And what I love here is that the God revealed in Jesus turns this idea on its head, uses that same term to bless those experiencing the darkest parts of humanity. That God chooses to draw near to us to experience the best and worst of humanity's troubles and then blesses those of us that are walking through those difficulties, that darkness, that God could have stayed distant, could have experienced that bliss that's described. But instead, God chooses to step into our lives, to be present with us, to laugh with us, to cry with us, to mourn and to rejoice with us. And I can't help but think, as Jesus was gathered on that mountainside with his disciples, talking about this kingdom of God and what this kingdom would be. He was also thinking about how this kingdom would come to fruition. What would come to pass? And what would come to pass is Jesus' own death and resurrection, his own suffering. He knew the grief and loss that was in store for his disciples and friends and those that loved him. We read it in the next few verses in Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. See, there's that mindset. Something's going bad. God's punishing. Stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. See, Jesus' family and friends were in store for some loss of their own. And and not only that, but Jesus knew that his followers would continue to live in a broken world and have to mourn not only their own losses and their own pain, but also just the sin and the death and the brokenness in the world around them. And with this in mind, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed not because of our loss, not because 
of our pain or mourning, but because of the presence of God, the nearness of God. God who is familiar with pain, who has experienced grief. See, church, the kingdom of God is at hand. And in this kingdom, the broken are made whole. In this kingdom, what's lost will be found. In this kingdom, those who mourn will be comforted. Those who mourn will experience the presence of God. And this is the God who comforts us in the midst of our mourning. So as we come close to our closing here, I wanna share a, a quote from Carolyn Custis James. She's a theologian and author who wrote, I have to ask myself, how can I possibly expect to know Jesus as he would want to be known if my life remains unscathed by trouble and grief? How can I hope to grasp anything of God's heart for this broken planet if I never weep because its brokenness touches me and breaks my heart? How can I reflect his image if I never share in his sufferings? And how will any of us ever learn to treasure his said, his presence and grace if we never experience phases where those blessings seem absent? As we close, I'm gonna do something a little bit different. I'd like to invite the prayer partners to come forward a bit early. Because after we pray, I, I, I'm gonna uh, ask the worship team to, to lead us in a, in a song of response of, oh, come to the altar. Singing of a God who's already present with us, calling us to draw near to him. And I wanna just give permission in this room, in this space to respond as you need to. Because I recognize that some of us are experiencing pain and loss and grief in real time. That this is, this is right now for us and we need to know that God is with us in our grief. And that some of us feel far from God. Maybe we felt that way for a long time or maybe something shifted as of late. And we need to experience God as the true blessing. The God who is good and close to us, even through life's ups and downs. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you. God, I thank you for giving up your own bliss. God, for, for stepping into our lives, stepping into our broken world, experiencing the ups and downs of life along with us. God, that we can look to you as revealed in Jesus and recognize that God truly weeps with us, that God doesn't just understand our pain, God knows our pain, God feels our pain. This is the God who seeks to comfort us, not a God who is distant, but a God who is close. And Lord, would we recognize that? Would we recognize you drawing near to us? And would we in turn draw near to you? In Jesus' name, amen.